need your word and we need your spirit. And so we pray by your spirit, O word of God, speak to us. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive your word this morning. Change us. Change our values. Change the way we think of ourselves. Change how we evaluate our lives in the light of your glory and majesty and frightening terror. Pray, Father, that this would be good for us, that there would be no offense taken by your word, but rather, Father, that we would be docile before your spirit as he works in us and convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Make us a holy people, a pure people, people who love Jesus more, remembering that those who are forgiven much love much. Bless your name, O oh Father, we bless your name and we praise you. May this time of worship be from the heart and acceptable to you, for we pray it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about the wrath of God, because nothing says happiness and joy like <laughs> the wrath of God. <clears throat> and there is a sense in which I truly mean that, as I think you'll understand as we go along. Before I begin, however, I want to remind you that Paul's letter to the Romans is not merely an explanation of the gospel, although it is certainly that. Rather, Paul is writing this letter to help believers understand how God accomplished our salvation and how that gospel changes us. We know he's writing to believers here because he repeatedly tells us that in the early portions of this book, and then later on, for example, in chapter 1, verse 7, he refers to those who are loved by God and called to be saints. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he, he says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. These are believers. This is not a gospel tract, hoping that they will read it and, and repent and believe. And Paul wants believers to understand how God has brought about our salvation. He also knows, however, as in every church, there are people who do not fully understand the gospel or have misconceptions about the gospel. And so Paul will strive to refine our thinking about the gospel along the way so that we can see its unvarnished glory and so that we can respond in a way that pleases him and brings him glory. Now, last time we were together, we spent the whole hour talking about verses 16 and 17, which are arguably the most important verses in the New Testament. As we looked at last time, these are the pillar verses, especially verse 17, the pillar of the Protestant Reformation, namely, that sinners are justified in the eyes of God by that righteousness of God, which is by faith to all who believe. This is the theological construct of the gospel. And this is what we believe. This is what Paul teaches. So to say that the gospel is good news may strike us, if we think about it, it may strike us as the understatement of the ages. This is not merely good news. This is great news. It is fantastic news. It is the most important news that any human being has ever heard since the beginning of humanity. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you can be reconciled to God by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. 
And that reconciliation comes not by becoming a better law keeper, but simply by humbling yourself before God and receiving with the empty hand of faith the gift that God purchased for you through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the greatest news you will ever hear in this life. Now, there may be other news that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but it doesn't matter. The fact that you're having your first grandbaby is absolutely wonderful. But it is objectively not as glorious as the good news of the gospel. This is what verses 16 and 17 are all about. And when we come to verse 18, however, Paul appears to unexpectedly and completely change course in his flow of thought. In, in verse 18, he stops talking about the great good news. This is the end of it, at least for a little bit. He stops talking about the, the great good news of the saving gospel of God, and he picks up the terrifying theme of the righteousness or the righteous wrath of God. If the gospel of God is the greatest news any of us will ever hear. The wrath of God is the worst news any and all of us will ever hear. Forget about the bad news that comes out of Washington. It's bad. But it's not that bad. Forget about the fear of Iran and the growing nuclear capabilities that they have and the the threats that they make toward us and Israel and others. Forget about climate change and sea rise. If you want something to worry about, don't worry about those things. Don't worry about inflation. Don't worry about the price of buying a house right now. Rather, worry about this, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And you know who those people are? Everyone. Everyone. Beloved, this is the worst bad news you will ever hear. This is the worst bad news any of us should be concerned about. More than anything else, people among the nations of the world should be concerned about the righteous wrath of the thrice holy and omnipotent God. In verses 17, verse 17, Paul tells us that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, however, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. Why does Paul make this abrupt U-turn in the flow of his letter? Well, he does it because no one will ever fully apprehend the glory of the good news until he has understood something of the terror of the bad news. In order for people to fully appreciate the brilliant glory of God that beams forth from the manifold facets of this gospel diamond, Paul must lay it before us upon the black backdrop of the wrath of God. This is where Paul begins unpacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts by telling us that, and this is point number one in your notes, all people are under the wrath of God. Everyone is under the wrath of God. Look at verse 18. 
I forgot to read the text, but that's okay. We're going to be reading it as we go along. I'd just like to have you stand and read because it's good for your circulation. <laughs> listen to what Paul says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The reason people should fly to the cross, should fly to Christ, should fly to his gospel, is because the righteous and holy wrath of God hangs over the heads of every man, woman, and child like Damocles' sword. The problem, however, is that many people don't want to hear about the gospel. They have, they have no desire, no taste for the gospel, no sense of urgency toward the gospel for themselves or for their children because they know nothing of the law of God and, and all they have ever heard, all they have heard about this God is, is that he is a God who loves. The God of the modern, modern church is a God who never gets angry with anyone. He's a God who is infinitely patient and kind and, and never willing that any should perish. The theology that such churches teach has no category for the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, or the wrath of God. Of course it's true that God's unconditional love rests upon everyone who has been reconciled to God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is marvelously true. Nevertheless, the whole of Scripture warns sinners against the wrath of God. You could turn your, in your Bible all the way back to the beginning. The book of Genesis. Genesis tells us that the whole world, with the exception of Noah and his family, eight people, everyone else were destroyed when God unleashed a worldwide flood because of their universal rebellion against God. So rebellious were they that Moses says, Proclaiming the word of God that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. Do we think we are any better than they? Sodom and Gomorrah were summarily destroyed by the wrath of God from heaven because of their rebellion against God. Pharaoh and all of Egypt experienced the wrath unleashed from heaven because of their rebellion against God. Time after time after time, Moses said, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And ten times he refused until the wrath came. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, remember them? Sons of Aaron, on the day of their ordination, God struck them down with his wrath for offering strange fire to God in rebellion against his clear command. You remember Uzzah? Uzzah? Who knows how to pronounce his name? <laughs> Mother's Day is coming up. We're going to talk about the baby's names. Don't name him Uzzah. <laughs> David was taking the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle where it should have been. And the cart that it was riding on shouldn't have been on a cart. Riding on a cart and they hit a pothole and Uzzah was concerned that the ark might fall off. He reached out and touched it. It's a good thing, right? He tried to stabilize it. it. Got 
God struck him dead. Because God had clearly said, do not touch the ark. In each case, says William Hendrickson, Scripture shows that these manifestations of wrath have their origin in heaven. It is God dwelling in heaven who vents his wrath upon the perpetrators of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, I suspect many of you younger people have never heard a sermon on the wrath of God or the judgment of God. It used to be very common. And it's always been necessary. But it is seldom proclaimed. As kind of a pastoral parenthesis, let me, let me just emphasize the importance of making sure that you always belong to a church that is committed to expository preaching. Now that may sound like way out of left field, but let me, let me tell you why I'm saying that to you right now. Perhaps you've never considered this before, but you should understand that churches that constantly preach topical messages are only feeding God's people what the pastor wants them to hear. And that's frightening. Even if he's preaching the Bible. If he is uncomfortable with preaching about certain doctrines and values of the Bible, values of God, just skip over them. And no one will be the wiser. No one will ever notice because everyone in the church has grown accustomed to allowing the pastor to, to determine what the congregation will hear from God and what they will not hear. But if the pastors of your church are preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, they don't have the luxury of skipping certain passages and truths that might make people feel uncomfortable. And if they do skip something, everyone will know. <laughs> Why? Because it's the next verse. It's the next paragraph. I mean, I'm totally serious about this. Let me tell you a story. Not in my notes, but I asked for five more minutes. I'll probably take 15, but... <laughs> young pastor here in about 2000. I'd been associate pastor here for six years. Found myself senior pastor. I didn't know what to do. I thought, I'll, I'll preach the Ten Commandments and then I'll preach Mark. So I started preaching Mark. And I started looking ahead and Mark, we got this, got this teaching of Jesus on divorce. And Frank, you remember this, right? And a lot of you who were back there remember this. And I met at our elders meeting one day, I said, and Joe, I know you're listening. And you remember this as well. And I said, listen, guys, this is coming up. Do we agree about what the Bible teaches on, bapti on, not baptism, on divorce? And so I, I just had everybody tell us, what do you believe about divorce? There wasn't any agreement. And I said, oh, okay, well, we have two or three months. We've got to work this out. And we worked on it, right? We worked on it. And that passage came up. I'm going verse by verse, you know, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. We get to that passage. We're still not in agreement. And so I stood in this pulpit and I said, today was supposed to be the day we talk about divorce. But the elders are not yet in agreement on what the Bible really teaches about divorce and remarriage. And so we're going to skip this section of Mark, and as soon as we agree, we'll go back. And so that's what we did. We, we just kept on preaching through Mark. And then the time came when we were all on the same page, and I said, everyone, let's go back. Everybody knew. Everybody, I knew they would notice if I skipped 
So we just told everybody, we're going to skip this. We came back, and I preached that passage and all the other relevant passages and explained what we believe about divorce and remarriage from the Scriptures. And I'll never forget that because so many people came up and they said, praise God that you take the Word of God seriously. That's not intended to be a pat on the back for us. Beloved, this is what you should be looking for in a church. Most of you are not going to stay here forever like I have. <laughs> Most of you have come in the last few years. And there will be a time when you will leave and you will go to another church. I want to exhort you, find a church before you take the position and make sure that church preaches expositionally. They take it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Talk about accountability for the pastor. You can't get away with anything. You just got to preach whatever comes next. And the reason I'm preaching on the wrath of God today, if you may be wondering, is simply this. It's the next verse. I don't get to pick and choose what you hear from God. My job is to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. And there is nothing I can imagine that could bring more delight to me and fear and trepidation than preaching the next verse. And the next phrase, and the next paragraph, and the next chapter. And so with that in mind, let me offer you a short introduction to the doctrine of the wrath and judgment of God. I, I didn't intend to do this, <clears throat> and I did print the four point, right? It says four points in your, it's really an introductory point, and then three points under that, and I'm not going to make it to the third one. And the reason why is because the more I started reading about the wrath of God, the more overwhelmed I came, became just in the sheer, sheer joy of it. I can only give you a little taste of it. But let me start in. It's not in your notes. Maybe just write down some references. First of all, um, we talk about the wrath of God. Here's the first thing you should know. God's judgment is certain. It's certain. Ecclesiastes 12:14 tells us that God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. You can be certain of that. There is much talk today about injustice in this world. But with God, every act of injustice and unrighteousness will be brought before the Almighty, whose judgment is perfect and final. God's judgment and God's wrath are a certainty. Secondly, God's judgment and wrath are righteous. They are righteous altogether. In Genesis 10, 25, this is the story of God telling Abraham that he's about ready to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. And, and Abraham is concerned. He knows that, that, that um, what's his name? Lot and his family are there. And, and Abraham can't imagine that the whole city is unrighteous and worthy of his judgment. And so he starts negotiating with God. And he says, God, um, will not the Lord God Almighty do what is right? Far be it from you, O God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. 
And the Lord said, of course. Lord, for the sake of 50 righteous people, will you hold, withhold your wrath? Yes, if there were 50 righteous people. Lord, if there's 40 righteous people, yes, I will withhold my wrath. Lord, I know I'm pushing the envelope here, but if there are 30 people, if there are 20, Lord, don't be mad at me, but can I ask, if there are 10 righteous people, will you withhold your wrath? And the Lord says, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will withhold my wrath. And there was not a single one. And that's the way it is all over the earth. We all are inflicted with the same malady, sin, and rebellion against God. The psalmist says in Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, the Lord sits on his throne forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Beloved, God's judgment and his wrath are not only certain, they are righteous. Thirdly, God's judgment is impartial. God is no respecter of persons. He isn't influenced by threats or bribes. Can I just tell you a secret that this world needs to hear? You can't cancel God. You can't cancel his judgment. In 2 Chronicles 17, 7, we read, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Beloved, you'll, you'll never know the fear of the Lord unless you understand his judgment and his wrath. And why is that important? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And so in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 17, 7, we read, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord, our God, or partiality with his bribes. With bribes. God doesn't take bribes. You can't bribe him. You can't threaten him. He is not threatened by you, nor is he impressed. In Job 34, 19, we read, God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And so God's judgment and wrath are certain. They are righteous. They are impartial. And we're left, left to ask, why does God bring wrath and judgment upon people and nations? Why does he do it? Well, first of all, he does it to display his majestic glory. He brings wrath to set on display his own glory. Isaiah 59, 18 and 19, according to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment, so they shall, here's the purpose statement, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. He will be glorified in his judgment and wrath. And by that I mean, and I think the text means, that his righteousness will be exalted. That his holiness will be exalted. Listen, any rogue judge could take a guilty man and say, you are forgiven. I pronounce you not guilty when you are guilty. And it would be an injustice. Take a bribe, 
respond to a threat, declare that an unrighteous person is indeed righteous when he is not, and will likely go out and perpetrate the same kind of crime that he did before, that is not a righteous judge. But God is a righteous judge. Therefore, he must, he must bring judgment. And so God brings wrath to reveal his glory. Secondly, he brings his wrath to vindicate the righteous and defend the weak. In Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. I know there are no doubt people in this congregation today or those hearing my voice who have been horribly mistreated and in some cases criminally mistreated and it seems like there is no justice for you. Can I just tell you something you need to hear? It's coming. Justice is coming. God will make all wrongs right. I wish we had time. We could look at Psalm 7, verses 8 and 9. Just write that down and look at it later. God brings wrath, number three, to punish sin. Psalm 1, the wicked are, are, are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment is standing in the judgment means you're, you're in court. If you're standing, you're good. If you're not standing, it's because you're in serious trouble, probably because you're being dragged off to your punishment. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Our culture no longer has any category for punishing wickedness. Rather, they punish the righteous. And it will be more and more like it, like what we've seen so far. But you know what? It's amazing. Psalm 15 gives a description of the righteous man. And one of the things that the psalmist says is that a righteous man, in the eyes of a righteous man, the vile person is despised. You say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound righteous. It's a description of God. It's a description of God. He is not duped. He is not threatened. He is not coerced to think that unrighteous people are indeed righteous. He sees through it. He knows. And the way of the wicked will perish. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversary, God's adversary, you. Yes, you. The author of Hebrews continues, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God? Some of you hear the gospel week after week after week, and you will not humble yourself. Do you think Do you think that you will escape judgment when you day after day and week after week trample underfoot the Son of God? And as you profane the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified, and you have outraged the spirit of grace, that is an interesting phrase. 
the spirit of grace is outraged. He has holy rage toward you. The spirit of what? Grace is enraged against you. For we know him who said, the author continues, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the book of Revelation, there is a place where Babylon, that great city, whatever city that happens to be in the end, that the nations have gone to play the whore, as the author says, and is drunk, has been drunk on the things that she has provided. And in the end, God will judge her. And you know what God says to the people, his people, when they see the smoke of her destruction? He doesn't say, weep for them. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. For Babylon is destroyed under the wrath of God. This is an act of a righteous judge who punishes evil. Finally, God brings wrath and judgment, listen carefully, to bring salvation to his people. Exodus 6.6, the Lord says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. Ten, to be specific. He destroyed. He utterly destroyed Egypt. for the salvation of his people. And one final example, and frankly, the greatest example of God's wrath bringing salvation. You know what narrative I'm thinking about? It's the narrative of how God poured out his fullest measure of his crushing wrath of judgment upon his own Son. See, beloved, the doctrine of God's wrath is critical to the gospel. It's why Jesus died. He bore the full measure of the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be set free. In my place, condemned he stood. He bore the strokes that we deserve. His judgment is our salvation. But it will never be your salvation if you never come to accept what God says about you, namely, that you deserve the wrath that he received. You will never have salvation. Beloved, this is but a taste of the rich, soul-refreshing doctrine of the judgment and wrath of God. God's wrath and judgment are certain, righteous, impartial. They display God's glory. They vindicate the righteousness the righteous, they vindicate the righteous and they defend the weak and they punish sin and they bring salvation. Where would we be without the wrath of God? Why would any preacher choose to withhold such spiritually rich food from the precious people of God? As one theologian has commented, if God had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God. Just as surely as he would 
not be God without his gracious love. He perfectly hates just as he perfectly loves. Perfectly loving righteousness, perfectly hating evil. He is the righteous judge. And he will vindicate his own holiness, his own glory. He will either pour it out on his son for you, or he will pour it out on you. If I might offer again another pastoral parenthesis, it bears noting that the absence of teaching on the wrath of God is evident today, not only in modern preaching, but in modern worship music. I shudder sometimes to hear what churches are singing. And, and usually it's, it's not what they are singing, it's, it's what they're not singing. With few exceptions, the songs believers sing in church focus on spiritual victory, Overcoming fear. I mean, like every other song you hear on the radio is overcoming fear, and it's about you have, having courage. God gives you courage to overcome fear, and you can be the best you, you you can be. Love yourself. God loves you. The power to fight the devil and receive the promises of heaven. All of that. And seldom, however, will you hear a worship team lead a congregation in singing about the wrath of God and how Jesus bore it in our place. On the other hand, I praise the Lord for the few who are seeking to correct that imbalance. Praise God for sovereign grace and for some other um, Christian artists who are seeking to correct the imbalance. And Kyle, I just want to say I praise God for you and for your leadership over our singing God's praises and carefully choosing songs with lyrics that don't skip what the Bible teaches. We praise God for you and for your, your whole team, all of you. The question that presents itself in this part of our text is why? Why is the wrath of God currently being revealed against the nations? And later on, Paul will tell us how the wrath of God is being revealed against the nations. But the question now is, why? Why is it being revealed? And I, and I want to submit to you that the text before us reveals two or three, depending on how you divide it up, I'm going to say three reasons why the wrath of God is being revealed against the nations, including are you ready for this? Including the, the nation of the United States of America. The wrath of God is being revealed, is being poured out on the United States of America. If you come and ask me, do you think, do you think the wrath of God will ever be poured out on the United States? And I'm going to tell you, it's already happening. It has come. It is here. And you're going to see why as we go through this text. Three reasons why the wrath of God is being poured out upon the nations. The first reason why the wrath of God is being revealed against the nations is because, number one, it's actually number two in your notes, they suppress the truth of God. They suppress the truth of God. Now, to begin here, let me make an observation about the text that we're examining. Paul wants us to understand that all sinners are under the wrath of God. But in the Jewish mind, Paul is a Jew, and he was ministering constantly to Jews, although he was the apostle to the Gentiles. But having a Jewish mind, he saw the world in, in categories of two there are two kinds of people, or two categories of people. There are Jews, and there's everybody else, the Gentiles. And this becomes more important later when Paul begins to address how the church in Rome 
consists of both Jews and Gentiles and must learn to get along and even love one another and sacrifice for one another and, and magnify the glory of Jesus in their relationship with one another, Jews and Gentiles. For our purpose, however, we simply need to know that Paul acknowledges these two categories, Jews and Gentiles. And this is important here because in chapters 2 and 3, you will talk about how the wrath of God is revealed specifically against the ungodliness of the Jews. But here, in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, he is specifically speaking about God's wrath revealed against Gentiles, people like you and me. The word for Gentile in Romans is ethnos, from which we get ethnicity, right? This is the word that's translated Gentile. It means people, race, nation, hence my use of the term nations throughout this message. God is unleashing his wrath against the nations, and I'm speaking specifically of this first category that Paul's talking about. Wrath against the Gentiles. Next, in chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, wrath against the Jews. Everybody gets wrath because all have sinned and fall short <clears throat> of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. 3.23. So now Paul has already established the fact that the wrath of God is being revealed or poured out upon the Gentiles. And there, while there may be many manifestations of ungodliness and unrighteousness that warrant God's wrath against them, there is, listen carefully, there is one particular sin that has earned God's righteous wrath. Now think for a moment. What one sin? Some of you are thinking, all of you perhaps are thinking of the worst thing you, sin you can think of. And you're probably wrong. Here's what Paul says. Verses 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, and here's the sin, suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The one sin against which God is angry, furious, wrathful, the one sin that is both unrighteous and ungodly or immoral, the one sin that provokes the anger of God among the nations is a universal sin. That is, it is a sin that's committed by every human being. And what is that sin? What is that sin? Beloved, it is the sin of suppressing the truth of God. More specifically, it is the sin of suppressing the truth that God has revealed about himself. In the original language... The word for suppress, suppress katakeo in this text, or katakain as the root, means to hinder, to stifle, to incarcerate, to put in detention, to obscure, to suppress, or to repress. You kind of get the, the general feel for the word. Illustrating the meaning of this word, R.C. Sproul explains that it compares to the idea of a gigantic spring or a coil. That in order to compress that coil, you would have to use all the strength of your body to push it down. And while you are pushing it down, it's resisting your strength and it's pressing back against you, wanting to recoil into its original position. And what Paul is telling us, says Sproul, is that we take that truth of God and we press it down. We do whatever we need to do to, to get it out of our minds. Nevertheless, 
All the strength that we use to suppress the truth of God simply cannot eradicate it. He can't get rid of it because it is always and everywhere pushing back upon trying to come, pushing back again, trying to come up again to the surface. You are wrestling with this spring of truth, and it is pushing back against you. You can never get it suppressed permanently. You can ignore it. You can cover it up with pleasure and all kinds of strategies and idolatries. But in the end, you will never be able to eradicate it. Paul's telling us that sinners have a propensity for denying the existence of God. Even though God has made his existence obvious, it's not some kind of hidden knowledge that only an elite group of people can understand. No, his existence is, here's his word, it is plain. It's manifest. It's clear. And it is clear not to, merely to educated Americans, but to every human being who has ever lived. Even if they're blind, even if they're deaf, even if they're deaf and blind, they know there's a God. They know there's a God. Why is God's existence clear to every person? Well, it's because God is the one who has made it clear. He made it clear in such a way that no human being on earth can miss it. God has so designed man and the world in which he lives that it is impossible for us to not realize that there is a God. Some who are listening to me right now would self-identify as agnostic, and I'm sorry for that for you. They don't want to throw down the gauntlet and declare that there is no God. They're too polite for that. Or at least they want to have some modicum of honesty and, and, and say that they're, they don't know. They just want to say, it's not that I know God doesn't exist. It, it's just that I'm not sure he exists. Or, or there, isn't, there hasn't been given to me enough information so that I can know for certain that there is a God There isn't enough information to draw a firm conclusion about the possibility of his existence. And so you offer the excuse that you are agonosis, without knowledge. Incidentally, agonosis, obviously, is the root for agnostic in the Latin. You know what the Latin word is that corresponds to this? Ignoramus. Isn't that interesting? Okay, I'm not pushing that any further. But listen, friend, God doesn't allow this option, this excuse. You see, when you claim to be agnostic, not only are you denying God, but you are blaming him for not providing sufficient data to decisively conclude that he exists. You see, this is the very reason the wrath of God is being revealed. God has not hidden himself to make it hard for people to find and believe in him. No, he has intentionally and deliberately made his existence obvious and has given man the capacity to look at the evidence and draw the obvious conclusion even before the scientific method was invented. You see, the reason God is angry with man is not because man has an information problem or an intelligence problem, but because he has a moral problem. And the moral problem is this. God offers himself to you, and you don't want him. That's why you suppress the truth of God. 
You don't want him. You don't want him messing around your li- with your life. You don't want him telling you how you should relate to your girlfriend. You, you don't want him telling you what to do with your money or with your neighbor or with your wife or with your children or your taxes. You want to be free. You want to be autonomous. And I, I, think, I think in the Garden of Eden, that's what was going on. What Adam and Eve wanted in that moment was autonomy. They wanted to be free from God's restrictions, which were designed to give them life and to preserve their lives. Man is a moral problem. He is born with the knowledge of God within him and the evidence of God all around him, but he chooses to deny the undeniable and suppress the insuppressible truth of God. Over the years of of my preaching here, some of you have heard, and even recently, that I half-jokingly have said, God doesn't believe in atheists, right? Atheists say they don't believe in God. And I've repeatedly said, God doesn't believe in atheists. And this is the text that I derived that from. If you're an atheist, God doesn't believe in you. You're not an atheist. You are a truth suppressor. And you know there is a God. And you not only know that there is a God, but you also know that you are accountable to him, which is why you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Beloved, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against the nations? First, because they suppress the truth about God. Second, because they reject the revelation of God. Yeah, we're not going to get to that today. And then thirdly, they exchange the worship of God. There's a lot more to talk about here. But I'm afraid you're going to have to come back next week to hear it. Can I just confess something to you? Before I studied this, it never occurred to me what a glorious thing is the wrath of God. How precious to the believer should be the wrath and judgment of God. Because God has poured all of that wrath, all of that ugliness that the world hates, it's ugly to them. He poured it all out on his son for you. For you. You hate the wrath of God because you can't stand the thought of God crushing anyone judging them eternally. But here's the thing. That threat is real. But so is the offer of salvation for all who will believe the greatest insult against God is that you will know about the wrath of God, which you now do. And you will reject the remedy he offers. The grace of God in Christ, the grace of God shields us from the wrath of God for those who believe and only for those who believe. And I pray that this very day, this very moment, you are taking stock of your own heart, your own soul, and asking the Lord, to give you the grace to see clearly, perhaps for the first time in your life, and to repent and fly to Christ who died in your place so that you could live with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that 
All of these truths come from you. So we believe them. We receive them with joy. And we ask you, O oh Father, to rescue some who are hearing my voice right now. Grant them the faith, Lord, to fall on their knees before you, to humble their heart before you, and to confess, perhaps with bitter tears, that they have been living in rebellion against you all their lives, and they're ready to surrender. They're ready to receive the gift of salvation. Grant it to them, Father. And the gift of faith, the capacity to believe, and may it all be to the praise of your glory and to the joy of your people. Thank you for baptism this morning and for the marvelous testimonies of your grace that you have rescued your people. Oh, Father, rescue more, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.